you guys very much. Everlasting God, and we're talking about things everlasting as we are continuing in our series called Heaven and Hell. So let me just reset a little bit as uh, we get our notes up there on the screen. Um, first week, we talked about the idea of why does it even matter? Like, why is, why is talking about heaven and hell important? And one of the main ideas that I thought I would try to share there is that if eternity is for real, which I hope you believe it is, then that is the vast majority of your existence. Um, and it's not your, your 80 or 100 years or whatever you have here on, on earth. And if you think about life expectancies or average life expectancies in this country— that is such a tiny fraction of forever, right? I mean, just a tiny fraction of forever. So if we think about what's really important, then we hopefully we're thinking about the forever and how the forever influences how we spend the little bit of time that we have here on, um, on this earth. And then we looked at what would, what would heaven be like, right? What will heaven be like? And I try not to focus on the architecture and the geography and all that sort of stuff of heaven, but simply sort of asked a few to think about two things. Number one, the glory of God will be revealed completely in heaven in a way that we don't understand it today, and that we will be with Jesus there, that Jesus will be there. And I tried to, to ask you to think about, and I don't know if any of you double-checked me, but in the New Testament, we rarely read, if ever, about anything like going to heaven. The Bible doesn't speak about going to heaven, believe this and go to heaven, or do this and go to heaven. The Bible says things like, believe this and you will be with Jesus. Jesus said, follow me and you'll be with me. Paul writes that we'll be gathered together with the Lord, and so will we be with the Lord. So it's never about the place, right? It's never about the destination. It's not a divine Disneyland, a divine place where you go and you get to do all the really cool things that you enjoy doing forever and ever and ever, but rather it is being with Jesus. Then last week we talked about what will you be like? What will I be like in heaven? And there's so many interesting questions, right? The Bible, I'm very, I'm very convinced that we will have bodies in heaven. I think they will be our own bodies that will be resurrected, but exactly what that looks like, exactly how God does that, I have no idea. Um, I don't know what we'll look like. I don't know what age, quote-unquote, we will be, and does it even make any sense in a place that has no age? I don't know any of those questions, really, or I don't have any answers to those kinds of questions, but I do believe there are things that we can take away, one of which is that we will be fully alive we will be fully alive in, in heaven for the very first time. There will be no encumbrances of my sin or your sin or the world's sin upon our lives. We will be free. The fruit of the Spirit will be fully ripe. You will know perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect kindness, perfect goodness. All of those things will be, whatever, whatever marring of them, whatever imperfections are placed upon them because of sin will be totally removed. And you and I will live in that light and in that presence forever. And that is so incredibly amazing. So today and for next week, I want to talk about hell. Now, I really, really enjoy preaching. I just love doing this. is the high, one of the highlights of my week is coming up here and talking to you guys on Sunday morning. But I don't really enjoy preaching a sermon about hell. Right? It's not something that I really enjoy. And so I've been here for over seven years and have done very few sermons on hell. Not because I don't believe it, but just because it's just not very emotionally exciting to talk about. Right? But in this particular series, that's sometimes why I like to preach through series, because it sort of makes me do certain things. We're going to talk about what will hell be like today. But in addition, to, we're not going to really spend a lot of time on the geography and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to talk about different things, and then next week we'll talk about it too. But what I want to think about this as we begin, so first slide is simply that, oh, it would help if I, 
you know what, Dan, I'm going to have to ask you to pull me a bit, couple of batteries here. It looks like we're out of, no, no, I've, I've got a, something that's, hold on. Somehow I hit a button that I shouldn't have hit. What do you do when you're old like me with electronics? You turn it off and you turn it on, right? So let's try that. Okay, there we go. As in thinking of heaven, I don't know, did you do that, Dan? Okay, well, we'll see if it works for me. I'm going I'm to go, go backwards and then forwards. All right, I'm good. Uh, something was blinking, and I don't know why it was blinking, so I must have hit a button. As in thinking of heaven, so the same sort of caveat applies for thinking about heaven and then thinking about hell. It's not possible for finite creatures like you and me to comprehend all of the revelation from an infinite creator, God. Right? It's just not, it's not possible. I mean, I wear a watch, you wear watches, or your cell phone tells you what time it is. We calculate things in years. Um, it, it, God doesn't do that. He is eternal. And even in trying to help us to understand how marvelous heaven would be, we get to a point where similar to the Mercy Me song, I can only imagine. There are so many things I just can't possibly understand about it. Well, the same thing is then true for hell. There are ways in which we come up against some of the things that are revealed about hell in the Bible, and I just don't get it. I don't understand it. It's hard for me to wrap my head around what this really means or what this is really going to look like or even what this is going to, to feel like. Like, what is it? And so it's hard for me to do that. So what I want to do is I just really want to talk about what the Bible says. Now, I'm going to interpret it, okay, in, in, in the way that I understand it to be interpreted correctly. I'm not going to interpret it incorrectly for you. I might be incorrect in my interpretation, but I'm going to try to do it correctly. But just recognize that there's no way you and I can figure this all out. Or that God is even able, again, in his infinite way, holy, sovereign nature, to communicate something that you and I, who are not any of those things, are going to be able to comprehend. So one thing I think is important, though, again, as we think about it in terms of heaven and hell, is that we recognize it's not possible, but we shouldn't then add things to it, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't add stuff to the doctrine of hell or the doctrine of heaven. Uh, that kind of gets us in trouble. So like, here's a picture. All right, maybe you're just going to have to help me. I don't know. It's not working again. It's getting, I'm getting a blinking light at the top, um, a blinking thing at the top. That, okay. Um, so I have a picture here, you know, I got off the internet. This is this, you know, please don't picture the devil or Satan as a guy with a pitchfork. And um, in this particular case, he has antlers and like deer's feet, which I was thinking it might be appropriate for the first day of deer season coming up, or at least right. I know it's already the first day of deer. You can, but but he's not. He's not. He doesn't have those things. This this is the way he's, he's not described this way for us in in the Bible. So let's not really give him a physical description. And that's really no more helpful than you know thinking that we're all going to have wings and we're sitting on clouds and we're playing we're playing harp. So let's try to stick to what the Bible says and then say, you know what? I just don't really I don't really understand much of what's going on here. But, but I have been given some revelation from God, and I am responsible to understand and apply and live out in that revelation that I am actually given. All right, so the next slide, it's not working, Dan, so you're just going to have to help me out here. Next slide talks about three main orthodox views of hell in Christianity. So, so basically, in, in orthodox Christianity, there are three main views that have been taught throughout church history for the last 2,000 or so Years. And the first one is the, the traditional view, that's the view that I would ascribe to, which talks about hell being a place of eternal suffering. 
so that without Christ, you, when you die, you go to this place called hell and you spend forever and ever and ever and ever there with suffering and torment. It's unimaginable and I, I get it. It's hard to understand, but that's the way I think the scripture is revealed. Number two is annihilationism. And annihilationism teaches essentially that you will go to hell, you will spend some time being punished for your sin, but at some period of time, it could be thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years, but at some point in time, God will just kill you. So your soul or your spirit is not in itself eternal, it just gets taken away. So you, you understand what I'm saying? You, you cease to exist. That's annihilationism. Um, groups like Jehovah's Witness. Now, I don't place Jehovah's Witnesses in Orthodox Christians, don't get me wrong. But Jehovah's Witnesses teach annihilationism, and other, some groups of Christianity actually teach annihilationism. And the last view is restorationism, and that basically says that everyone eventually ends up with Jesus in heaven. So you'll go to hell for some period of time. You will be punished for your sin in some period of time, but eventually, when that period of time is over, you will be granted access into heaven with God or with Jesus, even if you didn't believe in Jesus or even if you believed in something totally opposite to Jesus. At some point, after you have paid for your sin, you will be restored to heaven, right? Now, I don't have time to go through all of these today. So what we're going to do today is really focus on the first one. And then next week, I'm going to talk about two things that relate to the first one. And that is this idea of, is it really right or fair for hell to be forever? And do we really deserve it? Like, do we really deserve something that is forever and ever and ever? Some kind of, so I'm going to hold those questions for, for next week. But um, somebody here at, at Buffalo Valley a few weeks ago um, gave me a link to a guy named Bruxy Cavey, and some of you are familiar with that name. Bruxy is a pastor of a large Brethren in Christ Church in Canada, probably the largest Brethren in Christ Church in the world. And so in your notes, you will see the, I copied, um, pasted in some, some links, but up here on the screen is also those, those links if you want to take a picture of it. And if that's, you know, a little bit more technologically savvy, you want to take a picture of that. Um, he does, he does two sermons that are on the internet, one of which is his view of the, his take on the traditional view, which he actually does not agree with. So, I mean, I disagree with him on that one, but it's really good. There are two really good sermons. In the second sermon, he talks about both of those other views, annihilationism and restorationism. So highly recommend that you listen to that. Each one's about 40 minutes uh, long or so, 45 minutes long. Um, if you have any questions about that, I certainly could explain to you why I disagree with him about some of the things that he says in there. But if you're interested in this kind of thing, which I hope you kind of are, you know, not in a morbid way, but that you're interested in this, that you might watch those sermons. And if you want to dialogue with me about that, I would love to, to do that. So next slide, Dan. Two couple more caveats before we get into the message. Please don't be excited about hell. <laughs> you know, it grieves me at times when I read things on social media or I've read articles where it seems like Christians are excited about the prospect of other people that they disagree with going to hell when they believe in the one that I do, the eternal suffering part. I don't understand that. I don't understand how any of us who hopefully understand and appreciate love and mercy and justice would wish that on anybody to spend eternity in hell. Now, I believe it's true, but I'm not excited about it. In fact, I actually kind of hope, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. So don't be excited about it. And if you have any, but just please don't be afraid to poke them a little bit about that. We ought not to be excited about that. Then on the other side, don't be glib about it, right? Don't be glib about it. Um, I was watching in, um, an advertisement, an article 
about an advertisement from Ron Reagan. So this is President Reagan's son. And he's advertising something from the Freedom From, Freedom from Religion Foundation. And at the end of the 30-second clip, he looks into the camera with a big smile, and he says, I'm Ron Reagan, lifelong atheist and unafraid of burning in hell. Not so sure that's a good attitude either, right? Just dismissing it. If my understanding of Scripture is correct, he's not only not an atheist, he just is not acknowledging God, and when he dies, he will spend forever in hell if he doesn't receive Christ before then. But don't be glib about it either, all right? Next slide, please. If we approach the idea of hell with humility, we stand the best chance of understanding it, right? If we approach the idea of hell with humility, we have the best chance of understanding it, or at least believing it in a way that helps to shepherd us best through life. Okay, so number one, hell is a real place created by God. I don't think the Bible can, you can't really, I don't think you can disprove or or really argue too much with the idea that when the Bible talks about hell, the Bible talks about hell as a place. And maybe that's the way most of you have sort of been, have grown up thinking about it, that it is a place. And I use the word place in quotation marks because you know, I don't, Mifflinburg is a place, and it has sort of boundaries, and we understand what goes, I'm not sure hell is like that. I'm not sure heaven is like that either. It's more like a realm or an existence, but it is not just a concept. It is not just meant to have a symbolic meaning. Like, like we might say to somebody, I hope you don't really use this phrase, but you might say something like, you know, go, go give them hell. You know, give them hell. Well, you don't mean give them a place. You mean, like, give them, I don't know what you mean exactly, trouble maybe, um, you know, give them make it difficult for them, or, or again, I hope this is, was not an expression that was used in your household, but, but I've heard people talk about, you know, well, I really caught hell from my dad. You know, I really caught hell from him. Eh, okay, that's not talking about a place. You're talking about probably punishment or some kind of negative thing, and so it's like this symbol that references something bad, and, and that's not the way that hell is used in the Bible. It's almost always used as a description of a place, all right? So Jesus understood that hell was a place. Here's just one example in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be what? Cast into hell. There's this place that is referred to as hell. Next slide. Jesus most often used the word Gehenna to reference hell. Now, let's stop here for a minute. That may be a word that's unfamiliar to many of you. Gehenna was a word that was used to describe a place called the Valley of Hinnom, which was outside one of the gates from the city of Jerusalem. And the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament was a place where there would be child sacrifices. Now, they weren't sacrificing their children to the God of the Bible, but there were times when God's people and other people who occupied that particular area were worshiping other gods. And so it is understood that there were actual child sacrifices that took place in this place called the Valley of Hinnom. Now, in Jesus's day, we seem to understand that it was basically a trash heap. There was, there was animal waste that was burned out there, animal carcasses that were burned out there. In my research, some scholars believe that there were actual human bodies that were placed out there and burned. If there was no place for you to have a burial, then they would just dump your body outside of what was referred to as the Dung Gate, and that was the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. And so there were constant fire, there was constant fire going on out there in that valley smell. It was the worst place to be. Like, you know, you wouldn't go to a, 
to real estate to buy a place. And they say, hey, I got a great place. It's located right here next to Gehenna, right? You wouldn't do that. It was, it was not, it was, but it was a real place. And so it makes sense to me that Jesus is using a real place that they would understand to help them to understand another real place that they cannot actually see or that they cannot actually experience. So I believe that hell is not a state of mind. It's not um, just bad stuff. It's actually a real place. All right, can you go to the next one for me? Number two, hell is a place of punishment. Hell is a place of punishment. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is teaching a parable of the wheat and the tares. And in this parable, he then says that the Son of Man, he's interpreting it, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. There is this element of punishment that goes with hell. Next slide, please. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Everlasting destruction. Brief caveat here, that this verse is actually used by the first two views of hell as evidence of the first two views. So one says, look, it's talking about everlasting destruction, everlasting punishment, so hell goes on forever. The annihilationists would look at verse 9 and say, no, it's going to be punished with everlasting destruction, so they're going to be destroyed forever, but they won't actually have any conscious feeling of torment. So this is where we get sometimes the same scriptures can be used to think about two different versions or two different verses of um, two different versions, excuse me, about, about hell. But hell is a place of punishment. And here where, here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Go to the next slide, please. Punishment in hell, as referred to in the Bible, is not remedial. Right? It's not remedial. And what I mean by that is that, of course, remedial sounds like the word remedy. So when, we, when you discipline, or if you want to use the word punish, but I would prefer to use the word discipline, if you discipline your children, you do it remedially. You want them to change their behavior. You're using timeout or you're using the taking away of privileges or something like that because you want them to think, oh, I'm tempted to do this again, but the last time this happened, I had to go to timeout or I was grounded, so I don't want to do this again, right? So there's a remedial aspect to punishment. And we think about that most often in our own judicial system. Um, Prisons are still referred to and initially were almost always referred to as penitentiaries, Have you ever thought about that word? A penitentiary is a place where those go who hopefully will become what? Penitent for what they've done. They will repent. They will decide that that time they spent in the penitentiary remediated their bad behavior so that when they are released back into society, they will no longer do that. And so we still hope that happens in many cases today. However, we recognize in our own judicial system that there are some crimes that people can commit that we do not allow for remediation. We give you a sentence to where you will stay in the prison for the rest of your natural life. Because we don't believe, or the system doesn't believe, that you can actually be remedied and get out. And in the Bible, hell is not referred to as remedial. There are no sections. There's no long teaching. There's a verse here or there that could be interpreted that way. But there's no section of teaching that hell is this place where you go, you spend a period of time, and then you, and then you come out. 
Some of you, if you have a Catholic church background, you might be familiar with the word purgatory. Okay, so here is, um, up on the screen, here is a sentence about purgatory from the Catholic catechism. It says, All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So this is not Catholic teaching about those who go to hell. This is Catholic teaching about those who go to heaven. But you can't get to heaven until you are made holy. Now again, if you're an evangelical Christian, you're like, "Ah, I'm not made holy by my works. I'm made holy by Christ. So the idea of purgatory is not taught anywhere in the Bible. But I have a Catholic catechism on my shelf at home, and when I opened it up and pull it open, there's only one verse of Scripture in there that teaches the idea of purgatory, and it has nothing to do with purgatory whatsoever. I was just sharing that with with someone after the first service. It's actually a verse that's talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that this sin is not to be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. And so the catechism says, well, that must mean that there are some sins that can be forgiven in the age to come. If this sin can't be forgiven in the age to come, so there's purgatory. What? No. No. Punishment for sin in the Bible is not remedial. It is not remedial. Next slide. There is no second chance as it relates to eternity. There's there's no section of the Bible that would teach that you can live your life, that little section of that life that you have now, whatever way you want, and then get a do-over when you die. You might like it. I might like it. It doesn't work. It's not taught in the Scripture at all. Here's just one verse from Hebrews 9.27. Yep, go back. And as it is appointed for men to die, what? Once. And after this, what? Judgment. Judgment. No remedial. All right, let's go to the next one. Now, I am going to say that this is a little bit of speculation on my part. Well, it's not just me. I think most theologians that talk about hell or that believe in hell believe in the idea of different degrees of punishment in hell. Okay, so we didn't touch on this too much in the heaven um, discussion, but there are those who believe there are different levels of reward in heaven based on Paul's writing to the Corinthian church and talks about reward. I don't really know what that looks like. I don't understand. I don't think that you're going to get a bigger mansion than somebody else's mansion because you might, I don't really quite understand all of that, but there is pretty clear teaching about the idea of reward in heaven, and you'll be judged um, not for your sin if you're in heaven, but your works will be tried by fire, Paul writes about in his letter to, to the Corinthians. Look at these passages from Jesus in the gospel. So the first one is from Matthew 11, verses 20 through 22. Then he, this is Jesus, began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So he's talking about places where he was there, he was doing miracles, he was evidencing himself as the Messiah, and they weren't following him. They were not repenting. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, those are two of the cities, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Hmm. More tolerable in the day of judgment. Does that tell us, is that teaching us that there is a degree of punishment? So that Tyre and Sidon, those folks 
because they didn't get to experience the ministry of Jesus, that their judgment would be less severe than those in Chorazin and Bethsaida, who with their own eyes saw the miracles and yet still rejected Jesus. Next one, in Mark chapter 12, talking about individual people here, Jesus says, um, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Okay? What does that mean? These, these scribes who present themselves as religious leaders, but who love the trappings that are associated with it and even look to devour widows' houses, which means looks to, look to steal the money, from their inheritance or from their estate, these will receive greater condemnation. Not greater condemnation on earth. That's because they weren't being condemned at all. They were fine. But in the future. Now, I do happen to describe to this, but I don't really understand it. I don't really understand what greater condemnation means with lesser condemnation in a place like hell. I don't really understand more tolerable or less tolerable when the the place is described as a place of torment or a place of fire. The also interesting thing about this is notice that when we look, when we see these texts, and there are more than these, these are not the only two, they are almost never used to describe the grievousness or what we might call the heinousness of sin. So, I mean, we might logically think, well, okay, um, a murderer would get more judgment than someone who stole a television set. Because in our own system of justice, we don't have the same sentencing guidelines for those two things if you get convicted. So we might think if you lived a life where you just, I mean, you were just a horrific person, that you would receive greater condemnation than a person who, you know, wasn't nearly that bad. The interesting thing is that the words that Jesus uses about this, he almost always relates it to, to there's, there's a spiritual connotation to it, a, a religious connotation to it. So he's talking about the scribes who were supposed to be religious teachers, but who were teaching the wrong thing. He talks about um, Tyre and Sidon and, and, and Chorazin and Bethsaida because they were witnessing the, the activity that was going on. And, and I wonder, and this is speculative on my part, I wonder if the degree of punishment or judgment in hell will be greater for someone who lived, let's say, in Mifflinburg, who had ample opportunity to hear and believe the gospel, and who had ample opportunity to have, you know, 57 versions of the Bible on your phone, an ample opportunity to associate with followers of Jesus in communities like this one, and yet rejects Christ, does that person suffer greater in hell than a person who lives in Afghanistan who's never seen a Bible? who doesn't have access to a church. Now, there's a whole other kind of question there in that. But I wonder if that's part of the greater condemnation. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. And I'm not trying to use that as a proof text for this point. But the idea is, hmm, if we who live where we live reject Christ, even though we have so much evidence of his truth fullness and faithfulness and activity, will we receive greater condemnation than someone who lives in a different part of the world where those resources and those experiences are not available 
to them. Now, I believe God can reach into wherever God needs to reach into and give people revelation, and that's another sermon. I'm not going to preach that today. But that's the idea. There are different degrees, perhaps, of punishment in hell. Go on to the next, next slide. Last one is that hell is a place for those who have not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Right? Who's, who are the residents? Right? The residents are those who have never received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I don't believe that we use hell as a tool to guilt people or to scare people into heaven. I don't really think that's very effective. I think what it tends up doing is it, it tends to, to lend people to buying insurance, like hell insurance. They pray a prayer, they, you know, but, you know, most of us probably have life insurance, I would imagine, especially if you're younger. I have life insurance. I don't live my life any differently because I have life insurance. I just don't. It's there if I die to help provide for my wife and my family. But I don't live any differently because I have life insurance. And I don't think people who profess Christ and don't live any differently, I don't think they have insurance or they think they have insurance. Go to the next slide, please, Dan. The reality of hell emphasizes the necessity to make disciples. Gosh, this is it, folks. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Right? My desire, and I hope your desire, is to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, to pass from death into life. And Jesus isn't talking about physical death here. It doesn't make any sense if he's talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death, that we pass from spiritual death into life when we believe in him and the Father who sent him. Yes, judgment is coming. There will be hell, but that's not the reason, or certainly not the sole reason to follow Jesus. The sole reason to follow Jesus, the main reason to follow Jesus, is to experience abundant life here on earth and then in heaven forever and ever and ever with the presence of Jesus. But it is only through Jesus. Again, Jesus says, if you, you have to believe in me, in him who sent me. I am the way, the truth, and life. No, I mean, it's over and over again. Next slide, please, Dan. Isn't it interesting that the New Testament writers writing only a generation after the life and teachings of Jesus? Right, so, so Paul, James, Peter, writing somewhere within 30 to 60 years at the late, absolute latest for the book of Revelation all affirm the truth of salvation in Jesus alone. All of them, repeatedly. And yet, there are many who profess even to be in the church, and maybe some of you, who think, oh no, there's, there are other ways. There has to be other ways. No, there aren't other ways. And so the way that we escape hell the way that we enter into heaven is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Last slide. Because separation from God is a form of hell on earth. I don't like that phrase typically because I think it minimizes hell. But you will be separated forever from God in hell if you pass from this life without Christ. But the truth is that if you're without Christ today, you are separated from him right now. You are under judgment. You are dead to Christ. But he wants to make you alive. 
hell is a real place created by God. It's, it's not just a state of mind. It's not an expression. It's a real place created by God. It is a place of punishment. Now, I do not believe, though others may disagree, I do not believe that it is a remedial place of punishment. I'll talk more about that next week. And hell is a place for those who do not know Christ. So I would invite you today. In light of what we have an opportunity to experience in heaven and to avoid in hell, would you just ask yourself quietly to yourself, have I ever trusted in Jesus Christ? Not have I ever gone to church, not have I ever been a good person, have I ever truly received Jesus as my Savior? And we're not a every head bowed and every eye closed kind of place, but I would invite you as we sing to invite Christ into your life. And if you have any questions, anything that's a stumbling block, anything that we could talk about, please ask those questions so that we can remove that so you can enter into abundant life. Not only when you die, but today, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful I am thankful that you have provided a way for us, provided a person for us in whom we can trust and believe, through whom we can receive redemption, the forgiveness of sins, through whom we can receive abundant life, through whom we can receive eternal life. And you have not hidden the alternative from us. I believe you have painted it very clearly on the pages of Scripture. If we choose not to follow Christ. And so I pray that as we sing, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. That if that is true for you this morning, that you sing that with a sense of praise and worship. When we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, that you exalt that. But if you can't sing that with conviction, may I just please beg you, beg you to change, to invite Jesus into your life, even as we sing today. But then tell somebody about it so we can help you to grow.